0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 6 is where we left off and where we find ourselves this morning. We're working our way through this beautiful letter of Paul to the Roman church and We're entering in this morning into the wonderful world of Romans chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to find it, open it. We're going to stare at the first few verses. We're going to slow bake and marinate in this chapter, Lord willing, for the next few weeks or for however long it takes us to get through it, whatever that looks like. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the chair rack in front of you, maybe you're visiting with a friend, you don't have a Bible, you're just investigating Christianity, we'd love for you to take that Bible and keep it as yours, as our gift to you. We're going to have the scriptures up on the screen this morning, but I think it would be really helpful for you to just have your copy of God's Word open and for you to be staring at your copy, especially the first few verses of Romans chapter 6. Years ago, I spent some time in The United States Army is an infantryman. In fact, that's how I came here. I'm originally from the uh, Pacific nation of California. And I came here stationed as a U.S. Army infantryman, met a girl, stuck around. Thank you, Uncle Sam. But in every infantry company, battalion, there is this mystical place called the Arms Room. And it's where they keep all the weapons. And it's usually overseen by this crusty NCO that is like perpetually angry and grumpy and drinking coffee and always just sort of mad at the world. And that man in that unit has a lot of power because he has the key to the arsenal where all the weapons are kept. Romans chapter 6 is like the armory of the Christian life. In this chapter, there is power to wage the war that all of us find ourselves in as Christians. And I pray today and in the coming weeks as we work through this chapter, that by God's grace, he would open up the door to the weapons that are at our disposal that we'll find in Romans chapter 6. Well, let me read Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 5, and then we'll pray, and then we're going to work our way back through it. Paul writes this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Wow, praise God. Let me pray and then let's work through this text. Father, thank you for your word for Romans, for Romans chapter 6, for the treasury of gospel truths that await us as we work through this chapter for the beautiful treasure that we have been working through in the first five chapters in this past year. Lord, open our eyes to see beautiful things from your word. Father, life and death hangs in the balance. Sin is crouching at our door seeking to destroy us and, and you have given us weapons for our warfare. I pray that Romans chapter 6 would be decisive in the life of this church and in the individual lives of the people in this room. Lord, we plead for you to do eternal things in us as we marinate in this chapter. For my friends that are believers in Jesus, strengthen us, Lord, put steel in our spine. For my friends that are here that do not yet know Jesus, I pray by your kind, sovereign grace that you would give them a new heart and new eyes so that they can see and believe and trust in Jesus. Give them the gift of faith whereby they can believe and put their hope in Christ and his work on the cross. And Lord, as we think about spiritual realities of life and sin and judgment and eternity. Lord, this storm that the southern part of our country is facing, Lord, we plead for your protection from it, but we pray that we wouldn't waste this time that in a strange, beautiful, gospel-centered way that as we prepare and plead with you to change and to preserve life and to rescue and to have mercy, that all this is a kind of picture of the much more severe storm that is coming, the storm of judgment that will come upon all of us if we are outside of Christ. And so this morning, would we find refuge in the sure, steadfast anchor of Christ? I pray that you would cause us to do a thousand things that we don't even know we need. For the glory of your name and for the joy of your people and for the salvation of the lost, I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, my plan is to just work through these few verses, and I want to teach you two doctrinal truths, two, two, two words, two, one a word and one a phrase that I think will set up our understanding for the rest of Romans chapter six. And then briefly at the end, I hope to just apply this to our lives. So let's look again at verse one where Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So some of you I know are just jumping in with us here in Romans chapter six and haven't been tracking with us as we've been working through Romans chapter one through five. And this this question that Paul asks at the beginning of Romans chapter 6 is in the context of everything that he's been saying up to this point. So the situation is, is that Paul is anticipating a potential objection because of the things that he has said and written to the Roman church in Romans 1 through 5. And the things that he has written in Romans chapter 1 through 5 were so paradigm shifting, so in a sense scandalous, that he was anticipating that he would be charged with this idea that what he was saying would actually cause people to sin more. So what was Paul saying? Just very briefly, just to very quickly just kind of get us to the point where he would even think that that might be an issue. In the first few chapters of Romans, Paul has said and established the, the great important core doctrine that all people whether religious or non-religious whether Jew or Gentile whether they grew up with the law or without the law whether they were good little church kids in the south or they grew up far far from any gospel witness all people by nature and by choice are rebels that's the state of humanity as we have rebelled against God and that sin has produced in us an inability to do anything about our predicament. But God in Romans chapter 3 says that he has put forward Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, eternally God, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, to become fully man. Not 50-50, but 100% God the Son becomes 100% God the Man, and He lives a perfect life, whereby He obeys God and His law perfectly, where every other human being has disobeyed Him. And then He lays down His life as a sacrifice, as a the biblical word in Romans chapter 3, which is so important. He lays down His life as a propitiation, which means a wrath-absorbing sacrifice, which extinguishes God's justice and anger against sin. And then he rose again in victory over death, sin, and the grave. And that wrath that was barreling down on God's people is now turned into favor. So that's what that word propitiation means. It means an atoning sacrifice whereby Jesus cancels, satisfies, extinguishes God's wrath and turns it into faith, turns it into to grace and favor for his people. And so there is the solution that we are saved not by ourselves because we can't do anything to save ourselves because we're dead in our sins, but we are saved by the free gift of Christ in his life, death, and victorious resurrection. And then he continues in chapters 4 and 5 to say that the way that this grace, this sacrifice, this propitiation is acquired or appropriated or made your own in a person's life is through the gift of faith. Unless we think that faith is something that we in and of ourselves produce and bring to the table to sort of match God's offer, Paul dispels that notion, not only in Romans, but in other parts of the New Testament, where he says that even the faith that we have is a gift. It's not a prior condition. It's a consequence of the fact that God has made us alive. And with the new gift of life, Dead heart gets taken out, new heart gets implanted, and with that new heart comes the gift of faith whereby the newly made alive believer can behold and trust and choose Christ and put their hope in him. That's, that's the glorious news of the gospel. And then in Romans chapter 5, he's telling us that all people are either still in their sin, still dead, still in Adam, as a kind of representative of all humanity, right? He is our first father. We are all descended from Adam. And we all, just like like our children look like us, some of us, unfortunately. Our children look like us, right? That That was ornery. I don't know why I said that. We all look like our father, Adam, by nature. As as people, we are all born in sin. Dead. Unable to do anything about it. Or we are in Christ. And so as Adam's sin and guilt is transferred to us, is given to us just by birth as humanity, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' victory, life is given, it's imputed, it's transferred to us by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the free gift of God in salvation. And so all, all people, there's really only two types of people in the world. There's people that are dead and still in Adam spiritually and those that are alive spiritually and in Christ. And so that brought up the The thought, in fact, Paul ends chapter 5 by saying that even the law that Old Testament Jews were, were sort of using as a point of national pride to make themselves think that they were better than other people, certainly the law had its purpose, but it wasn't to produce pride in the Jews, it was to produce a futility in God's people so that they would see that they can never be holy like him apart from Christ who the law pointed to, who would obey the law for them. But Old Testament Israel took pride in their ability to try and obey the law. And Paul makes the stunning conclusion in Romans chapter 5 that actually our attempts to try and obey God and therefore become prideful actually just make us more sinful. It just makes us more sinful. That's what it does. And so the objection that he anticipates that he's handling in Romans 6 is people are saying, well, If it's not anything that I do, if it's all by grace, if even my attempts to try and live for God in and of myself actually make me sort of more prideful and sinful, and if Jesus has died that grace may abound all the more, and where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, this beautiful truth of the gospel, well then, forget it, was the possible objection why not just sin all the more because if the gospel is so powerful that there's no sin that it can't atone for and we're sin abounded much more grace abounded all the more well if that's the case paul if that's what you're saying let's just sin all the more eat cheetos be lazy and forget about it and paul in romans chapter 6 is saying no You're cutting the gospel in half. The gospel does not just forgive your past sin. It empowers you to subdue present and future sin and obey Christ. There was a bumper sticker, and if you have this bumper sticker, I've said this before, I want to apologize in advance. Uh, I see it around every now and again, and I, I just, when I'm at a red light with a person that has this bumper sticker, I'm tempted to just edge up and just give him a little love tap. <laughs> and this bumper sticker says, Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. Ah. Uh, and ironically, I used to talk about that bumper sticker all the time. And years ago, Paul Fincher, our worship pastor, actually found that bumper sticker and put it on the back of my car, unbeknownst to me. <laughs> And I was driving around Columbus for like months with it on my... Nobody in my family it. I mean, it's just the joke was on me. (laughs) But do you see how that sort of truncates the gospel? And this is what Romans 6 is about. It's not that Christians are just forgiven. That's only half the gospel. But that the grace of the gospel doesn't just pardon sin It infuses the believer with the presence of Christ himself, with the Holy Spirit, and it gives us the ability to fight sin and subdue it and to grow in obedience, even as we continue to struggle with it, until that day when we are finally free, when Jesus takes us home. Do you see that? So the Christian life, and I'm speaking in broad strokes here, can be seen in kind of three tenses. Justification. It's the beginning of the Christian life where Jesus, where God, through Jesus' work on the cross by the Holy Spirit, opening our eyes, giving us a new heart, forgives us, justifies us, makes us right with God, forgives past sin. But then that ushers us into the second phase of the Christian life, which is sanctification, which is what Romans 6 is all about, whereby we are enabled by the grace of God that has forgiven us to fight sin until we lean forward, stagger across the finish line, limp into that day which is glorification where we will finally and fully be free of all sin and be like him on that day. And Romans chapter 6, this beautiful chapter is about sanctification. So Paul, and here's this word I want to teach you before we move on, Paul is fighting against this theological error that he was anticipating from his readers that has existed in the church from then until now. And it's this. here's this fancy word. Now, don't be intimidated. It's this word called antinomianism, okay? And that's an English word that we've then developed years later to identify what is this theological error. What does this word antinomian mean? It, this, just look at the word anti, against, gnome, Latin word meaning law. So it's this against the law, against the commands of God. And it's the the definition is right there. It's the unbiblical view And this is what Paul is attacking in Romans chapter 6. It's the unbiblical view that believes Christians are saved by grace, but then after salvation are not obligated to live in obedience to God's commands. So do you see this? Do you see how subtle the nuance is there? Because we spend a lot of time talking about how we are justified by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. And Paul is thinking that, you know, we put so much emphasis on it's not anything that you do that makes you right with God, that if that's all that we talk about, then after you have been made right with God, we may unwittingly promote a kind of easy believism, a kind of cheap grace. And that is what is called antinomianism. It is a cheap grace. It says that I'm saved. Christ has done it all correctly sees that truth in the Bible, but now it says, you know, I can just kind of do whatever I want. Now, nobody would, I think, come out right and say that. There are very few people that would actually like publicly say that that's what they believe. It's far more subtle than that, though, in reality, isn't it? It's it's this subtle lie that we believe that we can rest and stay as we are. It's excusing ourselves and condemning others. It's this lack of understanding of the fact that once God has saved us, he's made us alive, made us new, so that now we are enabled to obey him in ever-increasing measure as life goes on. And Paul, in Romans chapter 6, as I've said, is taking aim at this theological error that has been in the church since the beginning. And so what it says, so now I want us to see in verses 2 through 5, I want us to see the theology the doctrine that Paul grounds all of his reasoning in, and it will serve as the, as the foundation for Paul's argument and all of our application as we go through Romans chapter 6. So look at verse 2. He says, his answer is, By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul is saying here in verse 2 that the Christian has died to sin. Well, what does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. So do you see so you see we're traveling on a narrow road here and there's two sides of the ditch that we can fall off onto. We can Paul is battling against this this antinomianism, this sort of sinful liberty that says, you know, I can just believe in Jesus and then continue to do whatever I want. But on the other side of the road, another ditch is a kind of legalism, right, that that says that we're justified, like we, you know, we have to, we're saved by grace, but now we got to kind of keep God happy by what we do. And neither one of those things are true. And so by saying that we are obligated after we become Christians to obey God is so. Certainly not to say that we won't still struggle with sin. So Paul is not saying that we have died to sin in the sense that it is no longer existent in our lives. No, it's not that we don't sin anymore. In fact, the Apostle John at the end of the New Testament says this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So clearly what Paul means... As the scripture is in harmony with itself, he's not saying that we are sinless. And therefore, you know, that's the Christian existence. No, I think what he's saying, and I was helped by this, by, by listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher in the mid-1900s. He, he classified sin's relationship with the believer, and he alliterated. I know, well, I never do this, and I don't think Martin Lloyd, Lloyd-Jones ever did this too, but he looked at sin in the context of its penalty, its power, and its presence. Three Ps. How about that, Martin? Way to go. Sin's penalty. Think about it in this sense. The penalty of sin is gone in the Christian life, the moment we trust in Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's the sweet news of the gospel. that, That God's wrath has been satisfied by Jesus and we stand before him justified. The penalty of sin is gone. The power of sin, however... Is, is still around, but it's broken. And this is Paul's point in Romans 6, is that we are no longer slaves. And all of Romans 6 is about this idea that the power of sin in the life of a Christian has been broken. We've been set free from its tyranny. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 says this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So salvation, friends, just stare at that verse for a moment. Just reading that verse should tell you that salvation is not self-improvement in any measure at its core. It is a flat-out jailbreak. It's a prisoner rescue mission. We were enslaved, and that's going to be the second half of Romans chapter 6, where he says, you were a slave to sin, now you are a slave to righteousness, right? So do you see that? We don't get freed from slavery so we can just do whatever we want, but now we're a slave to joy and obedience, and we have been broken free from the the power of sin. We sing that song, I love it. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. And the great good news of the gospel is not just that the penalty of sin is gone, but the power of sin is broken. However, the final final relationship is that the presence of sin still, the presence of sin, still plagues us until that day, doesn't it? It's still with us. And we may ask this question just sort of as we're wondering, why, why, God, why, why don't you, why don't you just kind of beam me up, Scotty, with the sin in my life? Why, if the penalty of sin is gone and the power is broken, why, why, why do I still have to struggle? With, why is it so slow? And we'll we'll meditate on that truth and that question in the weeks to come. But just a little tidbit of an answer. I I think that God leaves us here in our sanctification. Ultimately, the question is, what's the purpose of our slow sanctification? If he's justified me and he's promised to glorify me. Remember Romans chapter 8? Glorified is past tense. So it's not you've been justified. And if you really do good, you will one day be glorified. It says, no, you've been justified and you are glorified past tense. So, so what's with the sanctification? Well, let's, just, let's just fast forward on that bad boy. Let's go. The question is, what, why, why is sanctification so slow and gritty and hard? I think part of God's purposes in that is to use our lives as a kind of display, a kind of picture, an evangelistic witness to the onlooking world as we struggle slowly with sin that Jesus is better, that Christ is real, that God is good, that grace is sweeter, and he leaves us here to put that picture on display. So, So that tells me that discipleship is actually evangelism, right? But just the way we live our lives together as a church family should be a kind of aroma to an onlooking world. This evening, listen, this evening, at our one another meeting. If you're a member, you really need to come to this. We, we have to talk about some difficult things in the life of the church tonight. We have to tell you about a few situations where there is sin that we as a church are trying to fight against. And sometimes I wonder, God, why, why don't you just fast forward to this? Why can't we just get through this and everything be okay? Because God has designed for People for Christians to live together in community as they fight the power of broken, canceled sin together in front of an onlooking world to show that Jesus is better and our future is certain. And he intends for the slow struggle of a group of people together as a local church to be a kind of aroma of Christ to an onlooking world. So he says in verse 2 that we have died to sin. How can we still live in it? So in what sense have we died to sin? What's the basis of that? And that's what he spells out in verses 3 through 5. Let me read it and we'll end on this. The basis. So verses 3 through 5 is the basis of why Paul says we've died to sin and therefore can be free, can fight it, can be dead to it, can be free from its reign in our lives because we've died to it. And why have we died to it? How have we died to it? He answers that question in three through five. Let's read it again. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were Buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been, verse 5 is so critical. It has this phrase in it that is just going to undergird this whole chapter. For if we have been, here's the phrase, united with him meaning joined to Christ, united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, gosh, uh, I just need to take a knee and catch my breath because Romans 6, 3 through 5 are so important in the Christian life. Follow Paul's logic here. You seeing the logic of verses three through five is more important than, than any little catchy phrase that I may say. He is saying that the way that a Christian is not only forgiven of past sin, but is empowered to fight present and future sin, is because they have been joined. They've been united. They are in union with Christ, the two have become one, and therefore what's Christ is ours. So so do you see this? See this, dear ones. Salvation, unlike which is often peddled or taught in our church culture, is not a distant transaction where we pray a prayer, sign a deal, lock it down, and then we're kind of left to sort of muddle through this life sort of on our own until that day when our fire insurance is collected and we make it to heaven. No, salvation, biblically here as Paul is saying it, is a joining together, a oneness between Christ and his people so that as he has died to sin, so have we, and as he has resurrected in the newness of life, so have we. It means that that we get enveloped in Christ. That's why in the New Testament, the Bible calls the church the body of Christ because we are part of him. Here's the doctrine. I want you to see it. It's this doctrine called the union with Christ of the believer. We don't talk about it much. It doesn't seem to get much press, but it undergirds the whole whole spectrum of salvation. And this is what it is. It is the joining. And and that one word is not sufficient. The the joining, the uniting, the, the infusing, the melding, the oneness, the joining of believers to Jesus Christ by faith. And remember that faith is a gift, is a consequence of our regeneration. He makes us alive. We have faith. It's been given to us. We behold Jesus. We trust in him. That's faith. And we are united. We are joined together with Christ. Second part of the sentence. Allowing them to share, to possess, to inherit, to participate in, all the benefits and riches that result from his person and work. That's the logic of Romans 3 through five. It's not you've been saved, you've been given some tools, now work it out on your own. It is you've been grafted in, united to, melded and fused into Christ And all that is his is yours. And the certainty of your victory over sin and the certainty of your resurrection on that day is all rooted and grounded in the certainty of Christ. So I think there's two aspects to this union with Christ. We are in Christ And Christ is in us. That's the way the New Testament just kind of, it goes back and forth. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And so I'm going to give you like a little machine gun of verses just coming at you, just assaulting your heart with this truth. First, we are in Christ. Let me read from Ephesians chapter 1. Got to go to the glasses for this one. Using the small Bible again. And without it, it's just all blurry. Listen to Ephesians 1 verses three through 10. And I want you to see the logic here. I want you to see the, the consequence of salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. See, there's the just pay attention to the prepositions here, especially in. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's not just religious language. That's Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying that if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, listen to this young man who's struggling with sin. If you're in Christ, this is true of you regardless of what you may be going through right now. So reach down into, see this, let this truth so melt your stubborn heart that it overpowers the remaining power of sin in your life. Because everything that is Christ's is yours. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. See, everything is happening in Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, verse 7, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. So redemption, forgiveness, is not just something that's been dropped, dispensed, sent down a heavenly shoot that we receive. We have it because we're in Christ. Do you see that? It's, it's in him that we have this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him and things in heaven and things in earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This is a favorite verse of yours, I know, but stare at it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... Not just has a relationship with him, but if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. John 15, 4. Abide in me. This is Jesus speaking. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. First Corinthians fifteen twenty two. For as in Adam all die... So also in Christ shall all be made alive. We're in Christ. That's, that's the basis of Paul's logic there, that we will see him and be with him forever. Galatians 3:28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So we are in Christ, but it's not just that we're in Christ. It's also, and this is another way the New Testament puts it, Christ is in us. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 1:27 To them meaning Christians God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory. So I think Paul's logic there in Colossians 1 is that you're going to make it to glory because Christ is in you. Romans 8, verses 9 through 10. And oh, don't you know, I cannot wait till we get to Romans chapter 8. You guys just need to wrap yourselves in bubble wrap when we get to Romans chapter 8. Otherwise, somebody might get hurt, right? Okay, Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. (laughs) And then finally, Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For Listen to this. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Just picture that for a second. Think about the fellowship and the oneness of the Trinity. The the Son is folded into the Father. And we're burrowed into the Son. And we are hidden with with the Son in the Father. Just as an aside, if that's the case... What can man do to me? Amen. If that's the case, what can a storm do to me? If that's the case, what can a broken marriage do to me? What can a cancer cell do to me? What can a word of gossip do to me? These things have their temporary effects. I'm not saying that they don't. But if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Neither death, nor angels, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to wrench you out of the son who is in the father. And it's in that place that you fight sin. Yeah. Listen to what, I, let me just wrap this little part up here, and we're getting close. I know, let's just re- listen to this quote from John Murray. He was, a, he was a theologian back in the mid-1900s. It just dawned on me, because I wrote theologian mid-1900s on my notes. Mid-1900s sounds so long ago, but it was just, I, I mean, I was almost alive in the mid-1900s. <laughs> okay, so John Murray writes, listen, this is such a, such a beautiful quote. In his classic work called *Redemption Accomplished and Applied*, which, by the way, is on sale in our freshly stocked resource room that you should avail of your, yourself of, he says of this doctrine, union with Christ. Union with Christ. Remember what union with Christ is? It's that we've been. We're in Him. We're in Christ. I know we. Like we can't. It's hard for us to. But we're in Christ. Union with Christ has as its source in the election of God the Father before the foundation of the world and has its fruition in the glorification of the sons of God. In other words, the beginning of salvation to the end. It's all held together by this truth of the union of Christ. The perspective of God's people is not narrow. It is broad and it is long. It is not confined to space and time. It has the expanse of eternity. Its orbit has two foci. One, the electing love of God the Father in the councils of eternity. The other, the glorification with Christ in the manifestation of his glory. In other words, from beginning to end, if you are in Christ, God sees you treats you, deals with you because you are in Christ. And so what is his son is yours. The former has no beginning. The latter has no end. Listen to this encouragement from Brother Murray here. Why does the believer entertain the thought of God's determinate counsel with such joy? Why can he have patience in the perplexities and adversities of the present? Why can he have confident assurance with reference to the future and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? It is because he cannot think of past present, or future apart from union with Christ. That's the state of the Christian. That's where you are. Now, there are a hundred other things that we need to say about the fight of sin. And we're going to get into that in the coming weeks. But what I wanted to anchor us in this morning is that everything from this point on in Romans 6 is a pillar built on the foundation of this truth of union with Christ. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying the reason you can be dead to sin and the reason you will someday rise again in glory is because Jesus did And if you're a Christian, you are in him. He's in you. You're woven together. Friends, by the way, that's why marriage is so important. That's why marriage is not meant to just be, you know, a lifetime movie network romantic story. Marriage between a man and a woman is supposed to be an earthly picture of this reality. He puts two together. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He unites himself to his wife and he says, what's mine is yours. With this ring I thee wed and all my worldly goods I thee endow. And that's what Jesus has pledged, said, given, promised to his bride, the church. I will never leave you or forsake you. You're mine, I'm yours. And just as I died on the cross for the penalty of sin, not because I was sinless, but because I was a sacrifice perfect for God, from God, for you, just as I died to sin, I was baptized and then rose again over sin, so will you. It's sure, it's certain. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) I always get emails when I say that. My email is robert at (laughs) insidecrosspoint.com. How does this apply to our lives? Friends, we're gonna spend the next few weeks unpacking this, but just very briefly. Friends, do you see that the grace of God and the gospel doesn't only pardon sin? It enables us to subdue it. There are people in this room right now who are in the fight of their lives. All of all of us are. Sin is crouching at your door. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, the the enemy prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And if we don't have the armory of Romans 6, if we don't have the door to that armory open so that we can access it on a moment's notice, we make ourselves susceptible to the attacks of the enemy in a far greater way. How does this apply to our lives, friend? The gospel doesn't just redeem and save, it empowers, it renews, it puts steel in our spine, it sanctifies, and it offers great hope for the weak. The gospel does not say to us in the middle of our struggle with sin, in the middle of our fight, in the middle of our discouragement, the gospel does not say to us, try better and harder next time. The gospel says to us, Oh, dear son, dear daughter, lift up your eyes and stop gazing at your own power, but gaze at the power that is yours as you're united with Christ and lean forward into the sure and certain riptide of his grace that is pulling you out to see where you will be safe in his ocean of love forever. And when you get that in your heart, you're ready to lean forward and swing for the glory of God in your fight against sin. And oh, how I, how I need this truth daily. Let's, let's pray. Father, <clears throat> these truths are so enormous and so glorious that, and our minds are so dull because of our silly little addiction to entertainment that they're almost, they're just so hard to take in. There's our Our hearts are are so small and this truth is so glorious. So would you just by your grace, Lord, there's lots of application that needs to be done in the coming weeks. There's lots of specifics to get into. But for now, Lord, would you just anchor this truth in our heart, especially to my brother or sister that is in the fight of their lives. Their life is being destroyed by sin. Would you cause them to look up and see that if they are trusting in Jesus, they are so united to him in such a way that it produces an unshakable certainty and their power and future fights sin. And for my friends that don't know you today, I pray simply that the picture of the Christian life that we have been meditating on in this, this passage would, would so overwhelm their hearts, that that Christ would be real, that you, by your grace, would give them a new heart and that they would see Jesus and that they would turn from their sin and put their hope in him. Lord, I pray that you'd do that. I pray that you do these and a thousand other things that I don't even know to ask for, all for your glory and our good and our joy. In Jesus' name, Amen.